John chapter 1. Usually July 4th weekend in times past, I preach some kind of a God and country type of message, but this morning I thought we'd just focus on Jesus. Let's just focus on, on the Lord. We recently began a new series of messages from the Gospel of John, and uh, we're in John chapter 1 in what's called the prologue, and uh, John wrote this gospel so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. So that's the purpose of this gospel. And in the very first verse, John starts telling us how Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here in John, John 1, the first 18 verses or so, the prologue, we have a theological gold mine. There's just so much truth here about our Savior. Here's what we saw just last week in John 1. We saw that Jesus is the Word. He is the Logos that John is talking about. He is the Word of God, the Logos of God. We saw that Jesus is eternal. He was in the beginning with God. We saw that Jesus is God the Son. Uh, he was God. And then we saw that Jesus is our Creator. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We saw that Jesus is life. In Him is life. He is light. The life was the light of man. And then we saw that Jesus is God incarnate. God in the flesh. The Word became flesh. That's just in the first dozen verses or so. Holy cow. So much truth. So, so much uh, Christological gold. Well, today let's deal with the next few verses. We're going to pick up where we left off in John 1.14. And we'll go through John uh, 1.18. So 14 through 18. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along. John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank You for this beautiful Lord's Day, a day that we can come together as Your people and in Your house to read Your Word, to sing Your praise, and to worship You. Lord, thank You for this time together. We thank You for this holiday, Independence Day. All it represents, we thank You for our country. Thank You for the freedoms that we enjoy. Lord, we just celebrate all things American today, and we thank you for it. Lord, at the same time, we do pray for our nation. We pray for all those who are in authority. We pray for wisdom and truth and integrity, wisdom, courage, discernment. God, we pray that you would have mercy on our nation. We know that she is in trouble, and we pray that you would have grace on our country. We pray for grace, that uh, you might uh, grace us with a, another awakening of sorts, a revival of your truth and grace that would sweep the land. Now, Lord, as we focus in on you, we pray that you would just show us what you'd have to know about your son. Have us to know about your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And it's good to see you here this morning. And guest, if you would, there's a guest card in the, in the back of the chair right in front of you. If you wouldn't mind, take one of those guest cards, fill it out, drop it in the offering plate at the end of the service. But we're glad you're here. All right, let's jump in. If you have your bulletin, there's a, uh, a listening guide on the back panel. We're going to learn several things about the Lord Jesus this morning. And uh, we're going to kind of break it down into four categories as we see what the Word, the Logos, what the Word 
brings in these few verses. So in John 1.14, we're going to start, first of all, we're going to see that the Word brings God's presence. The Word being the Logos, the Lord Jesus, the Word brings God's presence. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh. And we've already seen Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh. In other words, He is the God-man, the God-man. Now, we've touched on this. We touched on it last week. and We studied this in depth several weeks ago in our Unsolved Mysteries uh, series. But uh, suffice it to say that the Word became flesh. Jesus is the God-man. He's all God, all man at the same time. Not part God, part man, not a hybrid. He is God in the flesh. That's a mystery. But now, John here uses an unusual word or a crude word for flesh. The word became flesh. And that word flesh, it speaks of the frailty of the human body, our frailty, our vulnerability, the temporalness of the body. You know, it's kind of like a bag of bones, you know, just this old bag of bones. The word became flesh. That would have been a shocking statement, a shocking truth for John's Greek readers. For in the, in the Greek mindset, they tended to think in the category of divine and mundane. And whatever was divine, if it has anything to do with God or deity, if it's divine, then it's spiritual. And then anything physical or material, well, that's mundane. That's less than divine, less than spiritual. And to say that the divine could become physical, that the divine, that God would become flesh, oh, no, you just don't go there. I mean, you can't, you can't cross those boundaries. That's, no, 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 that's a shock. But the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God incarnate. He is God, the God man. And then I want you to see that Jesus is God with us. He is God with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when Matthew was telling us about the Lord's birth, he cited Isaiah seven fourteen pointing out that the birth of Jesus Christ was a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14. In Matthew 1, 23, Matthew quotes Isaiah 7. He says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying, See, see, what, John, see what Isaiah was saying? That's Jesus. And then John goes out of his way to help his readers who might not know Hebrew. And he says, oh, by the way, Emmanuel, when you translate it, it means God with us. That's Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He brings God's presence. Now notice the word dwell. And by the way, we're going to get a little technical this morning, a little more technical than usual. But again, we're digging for gold. and we're going to, It's going to be worth it in the end. So we're going to get technical. But notice that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there in the language of the New Testament means to pitch a tent. To pitch a tent, to dwell in a tent, to make a lodging, to tabernacle. The noun form of this verb is the word for tent. It's where we get skin from, our word skin. It's a skenos or a skene. It's, it's the word for tent. The word, the logos, pitched a tent and dwelt among us. That would have caught the attention of John's Jewish readers because this is the language and imagery of the Old Testament. In the Exodus, God told, God told Moses and the Israelites to build a tabernacle. What was a tabernacle? It was tent church. <laughs> it was a tent-like structure 
which is basically a forerunner of the temple. But it was a tent-like structure that represented the very presence of God. This is where God's people would go to worship God. God's presence dwelt in the tabernacle, this tent in the wilderness. And the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, they would literally camp around the tabernacle. And the imagery and the language of the Old Testament is that God would dwell in the midst of his people. I mean, he, he would be in the middle of his people, in the tabernacle, in a tent, in the middle of the tribes of his people. In Exodus 25, 8, God says, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. And again, you hear that a lot all through Moses' writings, through the first five books. God dwelt in the midst of his people in a tent. Now, let's fast forward. Let's come over into the New Testament. In the New Testament, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul describes our bodies as earthly tents. <laughs> we live in a tent. Your body is an earthly tent. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says to Christians, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you? Your body is a temple. It's a tent, but it's a temple. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talks about the Lord indwelling his people and he goes back and quotes the Old Testament. And he pulls out that same language and imagery. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, and here's the quote, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The point is that in this era, this New Testament era, the era of the church, that God dwells not among his people he dwells in his people. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you. You are the tabernacle. You are the tent. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is with his people in the presence of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. Now, let's fast forward to Revelation. God gave John, our writer, God gave John a preview of things to come. He let him look into the future. He let him look into the heavens. And in Revelation 21.3, John says this. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God. The tabernacle, tent, skene. The tabernacle, the tent of God is among men. And he will dwell, same word we have in John 1.14. He will dwell, pitch a tent, make his dwelling. He will tabernacle among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Now, John's not saying that God will literally live in a tent in, in heaven. That's not the idea. The imagery, it's the imagery and the language of the Old Testament. The idea is that God will be in the midst of his people. That we will be with God, God will be with us, and we will be in the presence of God forever. Jesus brings the presence of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son... Our Creator became flesh and dwelt among us. He is God with us. He brought the presence of God. He is God with us. And then notice that the Word brings God's glory. So the Word brings God's presence, and the Word brings God's glory. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld His Glory. A simple classic definition of glory is a visible manifestation of the attributes of God. A visible manifestation of the attributes of God in a knowable way. 
especially God's splendor and power and majesty. Now, scholars speak of God's glory really in two categories. There's God's visible glory, and then there's God's spiritual glory. God's visible glory would, again, be a visible manifestation, especially of his power and splendor and majesty. And it's usually associated with light or a cloud or fire. God's visible glory. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. (laughs) And everybody in the temple had to get out of the temple. The glory of the Lord filled that space. That's the idea. But then there's also God's spiritual glory. And that is the, the summation of his moral perfections, his moral beauty, his attributes like love and joy and peace and grace and mercy and holiness and justice. And you put all those together and you have God's moral beauty, his spiritual glory. Now, let me show you a fascinating event in the life of Moses. So hang on to John. We're not done with John. But go with me to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. Moses is on Mount Sinai with the Lord. And here's a fascinating, here's a fascinating event. In Exodus 33 and verse 18, Moses said, Moses is on Mount Sinai. He's with God in the presence of the Lord. And Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. So he asked the Lord, show me please your glory. Lord, would you show me your glory? And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, let's fast forward and we watch this happen. In the next chapter, down in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, talking about Moses, the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed the Lord. That's the divine name of God, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So notice that's God's attributes. So did you get that? Moses asked the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, no, that'd kill you. Here's what I will do, though. I'll I'll cover your face with my hand and I'll cause my goodness to pass by. And I'll declare before you my name and When my glory is past, I'll take away my hand and you can see the backside of my glory, the afterglow of my glory. Now, God did not show Moses his visible glory. It would have killed Moses. But what does he reveal? His spiritual glory, his attributes. And notice at the end of these attributes, notice notice abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's that's just two of his attributes, abounding in loving kindness. That's the Hebrew word kesed. We've talked about that many, many times before. Kesed, that's that's a very powerful Old Testament term. It speaks of God's loyal, faithful, committed covenant love for his people. It's a love that won't let go. It is 
Sometimes it's translated in our English Bibles as loyalty or faithfulness or love or loving kindness or mercy, but it is an unfailing love. God's tenacious, gracious love for his people. That's Kessid. God is abounding in that unfailing love and abounding in truth. So those are two of his attributes, his perfections. Those, that's just part of his glory. Now let's go back to, to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And you remember the Word was with God. The Word was God. Oh, we said that, that the, the actual wording of the Greek is God was the Word. God was the Word. What God is, the Word is. What God does, the Word does. What God has, the Word has. That same visible and spiritual glory that God the Father has, God the Son has. But now during the Lord's incarnation, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, His visible glory was veiled. Remember, if Moses looked on the glory of God, it would have killed him. Jesus has that same glory. God the Son has the same glory. But during his incarnation, while he was flesh and dwelt among us, his visible glory was veiled. When you saw Jesus walking down the road, you didn't see light. You didn't see fire. You didn't see cloud. You saw a man, the God-man. His visible glory was veiled. Now, the disciples got a, a glimpse, a peek into that visible glory at the transfiguration. And in Matthew chapter 17... On the Mount of Transfiguration, it says that the Lord's face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. That's, that's a little bit of his glory seeping through. And then uh, on the road to Damascus, remember Saul met the risen glorified Savior on the road to Damascus. And he was blinded by the light, possibly the light of the risen Lord's glory. But he was blinded by light. When Jesus comes back, he will come back in his resplendent glory. But during his incarnation, his glory, his visible glory was veiled. But now John says, hey, we, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's not talking about that visible glory, of that manifestation of power and majesty. He's talking about that moral beauty, the character, the divine attributes that the Lord possessed. That, that honor and, and grace and truth and, and, and the rest, those, those attributes. Now notice two of them in view in particular. Glorious of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of His, talking about God's glory. God the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of His nature. Now, notice, here's your outline. Here's one of his attributes. Jesus is full of grace and truth. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's an echo of what we saw in Exodus 34. He is abounding in loving kindness and truth, that unfailing love and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Now, you know all about grace, right? You read the New Testament, you're going to get a belly full of grace. You can't get away from grace. Paul uses the word for grace over a hundred times in his writing. He, he's got a lot to say about grace. And here's something interesting, though. In the Gospel of John, John only mentions grace four times in the whole Gospel. He uses this word for grace four times, and they're all right here in the verses we just read. After 118, no more grace in the Gospel of John. 
Jesus is full of grace and truth. Now, John's all about truth, though. He's going to mention truth 25 times in the gospel, 20 times in the epistles, and he's going to show us that Jesus is the truth and that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. John's all about truth. But Jesus is full of grace and truth. That's, that's part of the glory of God is the glory of the Son. We beheld his glory. Notice also Jesus is the unique Son of the Father. He is the unique Son of the Father. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Now you've heard that before, only begotten, right? John 3.16. If you learn John 3.16, especially in King James, for God so loved the world that gave his only begotten Son. Only begotten. That's an odd word. It's monogenes in the Greek. Monogenes. Mono, one. Genes, kind of think genus. Remember biology? You have genus and species, so forth. Genus, kind. Monogenes, unique, one of a kind. One lexicon put it this way, radically distinctive and without equal in a category. <laughs> That's monogenes. Radically distinctive and without equal in a category. Unique, one of a kind. This is a strange word. It only shows up nine times in the whole New Testament. Luke uses it three times to describe an only child, someone's only daughter, their only son. So, so Luke uses it in that sense, someone who has an only child, only begotten child. John uses it four times in the gospel, and it's always referring to Jesus Christ. And then he uses it once in 1 John as well. So John uses this five times to describe Jesus. The only other time you see it in the New Testament is in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of faith. And in Hebrews 11, it, the writer talks about Abraham. By faith, Abraham was ready to offer up his son, his only begotten son, Isaac. Only begotten. When we're talking about Jesus Christ, we're not talking about only begotten as the only born son. That's not, that, it's not about being born. It's unique. One of a kind, radically distinctive, without equal, in a category. Think about Isaac, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, by faith, Abraham offered up his only begotten son. Isaac was not Abraham's only son. In fact, he had a son before Isaac named Ishmael through Hagar. You remember that story. After Isaac, Abraham had other children by a woman named Keturah. So Isaac was not Abraham's only begotten son, as in his only child. No, but he was his unique, one-of-a-kind, radically distinctive, without equal in the category son. Isaac was the child of promise. A promise that God made and fulfilled to an old man and to an old woman without children. And Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old. The Bible says as good as dead. <laughs> when he was 100 years old, as good as dead. And his wife was 90 years old and barren, and God gave them a miracle baby, the child of promise, the child of laughter, Isaac. A unique, one-of-a-kind, radically distinctive, without equal in a category, son. Jesus is, not, Jesus is not God's only son. He's not God's only child. We saw that in John 1.12. To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith and trust in Christ? Have you been saved? Have you received his gift of eternal life? If so, you're a child of God, son or a daughter of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we might be called the children of God, and such we are. You are a child of God. So Jesus is not God's 
only son, only begotten son. Because if you're a child of God, you're born of God. We saw that in John last week. You're born of God. Not of the flesh, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. You're begotten of God. But Jesus is the unique, one-of-a-kind, radically distinctive, without equal in a category, son of God. The son of God. He is God the Son. Now we're going to see that word again here in just a little bit. But Jesus is the unique one-of-a-kind Son of the Father. And then in verse 15, we learn something else about Jesus. That Jesus is greater than and prior to John the Baptist. John 15, in verse 15, John testified about him. Talking about John the Baptist. The only John in the Gospel of John is John the Baptist. Our, Our writer, John the Apostle, is never named. He is just the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the beloved disciple. So John, this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist testified about Jesus, the Word, and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now we're going to come back to John the Baptist in the next passage. But here's John the Baptist saying that Jesus comes before me. He is of higher rank and he comes before me. Now wait a minute. John the Baptist is actually six months older than Jesus. And his ministry started before the Lord's ministry. So how is it that Jesus has a higher rank and and priority? How can he say he existed before me? Because John knows there's the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. He is the Son of God, the unique Son of God. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus is greater than and prior to John the Baptist. We'll come back to John the Baptist next time around. So the word Jesus, the Logos, brings God's presence, brings God's glory, and thirdly, brings God's grace. The word brings God's grace. Look in verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace of his fullness remember he's full of grace and truth of his fullness we have all received in colossians 1 paul says it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and then then in the next chapter for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form jesus is full of deity he's the god man he is full of deity he is full of god's resources namely here in this context grace and truth and especially grace. We have received of the fullness of His grace, grace and truth. We've all received from Him, from the fullness of His grace, we have received grace upon grace. So here's your outline. Jesus gives grace upon grace. He brings God's grace. Jesus gives grace upon grace. That's a weird phrase too. Only time that shows up in the whole New Testament. And the preposition is weird. The preposition upon is not the normal preposition for upon. It actually means in exchange for, instead of. It's the idea of replacement. So we have grace upon grace. We've received of his fullness, grace upon grace. Scholars take that phrase and understand it two ways. And you kind of pay pay your money, take your choice. One idea is that it's cumulative. Grace upon grace. It's just adding up. Grace added to grace. Grace in addition to grace. So it speaks of a constant inexhaustible supply of grace. And that's what Jesus brings. A constant, inexhaustible supply of grace. Now that's true. That squares with the rest of Scripture. It's theologically true. It's accurate. That works. 
And that inexhaustible supply of grace is true in salvation and it's true in the Christian life. It's true in salvation. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that God freely bestows His grace on us in the Beloved. That He lavishes His grace on us. He gives to us according to the riches of His grace. So in Ephesians 1, we get the idea there's an inexhaustible supply of God's grace with respect to salvation. R. Kent Hughes makes the application. He says, no one is beyond the power of God's grace, even if he thinks he is. (laughs) No one is beyond the power of God's grace. Here's the good news. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, there's enough grace to save you. Nobody can come to God with whatever is in their past and, 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 and hear God say, Wow, I can't afford to save you. I don't have enough grace for somebody like you. No, there's an inexhaustible supply of grace. He bestows upon it. He, he bestows His grace upon us in the Beloved freely according to the riches of his grace he lavishes it so no matter who you are where you've been what's in your past no matter no matter there's enough grace to save you grace upon grace and then it's also true in the christian life this inexhaustible supply i love what robert Munt says about this passage he says not only about the disciples john and his disciples not only had they received grace when they came to him in faith but their experience of the goodness of god was one of continuous blessedness grace upon grace This phrase makes clear the progressive blessings that come in the Christian life. Each experience of the grace of God is replaced by the next, like manna uh, that came fresh every morning. John's point is that at the heart of the new life in Christ is a constant supply of grace. That's the Christian life as well. A constant supply of grace. His mercies are renewed every morning. Grace upon grace upon grace. So there's that cumulative idea. The other idea is the idea of replacement. And that kind of gets to the preposition that John uses. Grace instead of grace. Grace exchanged for grace. The idea of replacement. Well, that's odd. What would that be about? Well, it kind of fits the context as you keep going. Look in the next verse. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So in the context... It's probably the better idea that we're talking about one grace exchanged for another grace. Here's, here's your outline. Jesus is better than Moses and the law. Jesus was better than John the Baptist. We saw, we'll get to that more later. Jesus is better than John the Baptist. Jesus is better than Moses and the law. Now, Mo, John's not dissing the law. He's not disrespecting the law. He's not dismissing the law. Not saying the law was bad. No, nope, the law was a grace, gracious gift of God. It was grace and truth. But the law doesn't save anybody. Paul makes the same point as well. Paul doesn't hate the law. Paul just tells you the law can't save you. The law is a tutor. It's a schoolmaster. The law teaches us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law shows us we're all condemned in our sins. We have all broken God's laws, and we need forgiveness. We need grace. We need mercy. We need saving. We're in trouble. The law shows us that. So in that sense, the law of God, it's it's grace and truth, but it's a grace and truth that won't save you. It just tells you you need saving. But grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus. He brings grace and truth that saves sinners. And then Jesus is better... Here's grace upon grace. It's a better grace in that Jesus is better than Moses, too, in the sense that Moses didn't see God. Jesus sees God. 
Moses didn't see God. Even though Moses was in the presence of God, Moses would meet with God and his face would shine. I mean, with the afterglow of being in the presence of God. But Moses never saw God. We, we, we saw that in Exodus 33. But the Son does. That leads us to the next thing. So Jesus, the Word, brings God's presence. He brings God's glory. He brings God's grace. And the Word brings God's interpretation. He brings God's interpretation or explanation. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, he's going to show us. Look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let's break it down. No one has seen God at any time. The word order is emphatic in the Greek. God, no man has seen, not ever. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the language of the New Testament. God... No man has seen at any time, not ever. We heard God tell Moses, Moses, you can't see me and live. No man can see me and live. Jesus says in John chapter 6, not anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. No one has seen the Father except the Son. The Son seen the Father. That makes Jesus better than Moses. Moses didn't see God. He's in the presence of God, saw the backside of God's glory, attributes. All, as, as much as Moses experienced of God's presence, he didn't see God. Jesus sees God. Here's, here's, here's your outline. Jesus is God. Notice a few more truths. Again, a gold mine of truth. So let's dig a little bit. Jesus is God the Son. Now notice in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God. The only begotten God. There's our word again, monogenes, unique, one of a kind, radically distinctive, without equal in a category. Only begotten. Not about being born. Not the only born son of God. The only, and notice it's not the only begotten son of God. It's the only begotten God. The only begotten God. Jesus is the only begotten, the unique, one of a kind, radically distinctive, without equal in the category. He is God the Son. You get the idea. John wants you to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And believing on Him, you might have life in His name. And then Jesus is close to the Father. He's the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. To be in the bosom, on someone's bosom, that's, that's an old expression. And, and the idea is to be intimate with, to be close to. It speaks of intimate human relationships as between a husband and wife, a parent and child, or close friends. Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. That is to say, Jesus, God the Son, is intimate with God the Father. He's intimate with God the Father. He's close to God the Father. And then Jesus reveals God the Father. He has explained Him. No one has seen God at any time, not ever. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The Son explains the Father. And that word explain, it's the word we get exegesis from. And it means to interpret to explain, to unveil, to unfold, to make known as a teacher. In some settings, it, it meant to reveal divine secrets. This, I'm, I'm doing exegesis right in front of you. I'm doing it right now. This is exegesis. <laughs> it, to ex, we do exegetical sermons. That is to take a passage, interpret it, and explain it. That's exegesis. To take something, explain it, interpret it, unfold it, make it known. Exegesis. Jesus exegetes the Father. He unfolds. He unveils. He interprets. He explains. He makes known the Father. No man has seen the Father at any time. 
the Son reveals the Father. John, uh, Paul puts it this way. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the visible image of the invisible God. You can't see God. One, he's invisible. He's a spirit. He's invisible. You can't see God. And if you could see him, it'd kill you. <laughs> you can't see the glory of God. It would kill you. But you can see the Son. He's the visible image of the invisible God. Let's see. Let me show you one. It's, it's, it's kind of sad, but it's also funny at the same time. A conversation later in the Lord's ministry. Let's go to John 14. This is where we'll quit. Go to John 14. John 14. You know this passage, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in God also in me, so forth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The very next verse, John 14, 7. Jesus tells his disciples, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. That'd be great. Would you just show us the Father? Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He just said, Hey, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you know me, you know the Father. Lord, would you show us the Father? Verse paraphrase. Seriously, dude? Seriously? Are you not listening? Have, have I been so long with you, yet you've not come to know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Look at verse 10. Do you not believe that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding me does his works. You've seen the Son. You've seen the Father. How can you say that? Because the Son exegetes the Father. He reveals, unfolds, unveils, interprets, explains, and makes known the Father. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. Wow. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you'd have life in His name. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He is the Savior. Do you believe on him? Have you believed on his name? That is to say, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you been saved? That's why John writes this. The whole point. He wants you to know and believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and have life in him. Jesus loves you. The problem is you've sinned against God. That's the law. The law shows us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But Jesus loves you and he died on the cross for you. He was buried, he was raised again, he's alive today. And he offers you the gift of eternal life if you would repent and put your faith in, in him. Turn, turn from sin and self, turn from this world, and you turn to Jesus Christ and say, Oh Jesus, I believe you. <laughs> I trust you with my life, my death, my eternity. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me, save me. Jesus wants to save you. There's enough grace. There's an overabundance of grace if you'll repent and believe on him. In a few moments, we're going to stand up and sing a hymn of decision. I'll be right here. I invite you to come to me and say, Preacher, I need Jesus. Or I have questions. Or I want to get saved. However you want to say it. We'd love to have a private conversation with you. We won't pressure you. We won't embarrass you. we just answer your questions, share with you some scriptures, pray with you if you'd like to. But you could leave here today a child of God, your sins forgiven, heaven your home, Jesus your Savior, God your Father. Say yes to Jesus Christ. If you already know the Lord, if you are saved... Hallelujah, what a Savior. Oh my goodness, what a view of Jesus. He is the Word, and He brings God's presence, God with us, 
He brings God's grace, He brings God's glory, and He unveils to us, He makes known to us the Father. What a Savior. We ought to love Him and worship Him and serve Him and obey Him and tell others about Him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you again for this time in your word. Lord, we celebrate your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for the one who's never been saved. Help them to hear and to know that they are lost without hope, without God in the world, that their sins have separated you from, from you and condemned them to an eternity apart from you. But the Lord, I pray that you'd also help them to see your Son and your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, bring them to the cross even today. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Now that time that a sinner would repent and say, I believe, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Lord, just take charge of this time of decision. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together for a hymn of decision. If there's a spiritual decision you need to make for him, most urgently, most importantly, to be saved, we invite you to come. Perhaps to join this church, we'd love to have you. Maybe to be baptized, or maybe you need to pray with somebody. We invite you to come right now as we sing.